Welcome to CT Church. This message was recorded during our Sunday service. We hope you enjoy this presentation. This morning we're really talking about Bible study, how to study the Bible. The real secret of great Bible study is simply asking questions, the right kind of questions. You know, the more you bombard a particular text with questions, the more you're going to get out of it. The cool thing about the Bible is the supernatural aspect of it. Part of that supernatural aspect is that no matter how many times you study a passage, you never fully hit the bottom, so to say. You, you, these, you don't mine all of the gold out. There's all, the Bible is always able to continue to speak into our lives. You know, there's passages that I've read dozens and dozens of times in my life, and one day I'll read it, and man, it'll just speak something new into my heart. I don't think it's possible to mine all of the gold out of any one particular passage because the Bible is supernatural, and it has the ability to speak new truths to us at different points in our life. It doesn't mean that God's Word changes. It just means it can speak different things to us at different times. Amen? It's important to begin uh, by learning what Bible scholars refer to as the principles of observation. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Studying God's Word, there's this format called the principles of observation so that we can begin to see things in Scripture that maybe we never saw before. And there are four basic types of questions that we should ask ourselves anytime we sit down to really study God's Word. And those questions are about observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. There's a lot of shuns going on there. Observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. So this morning I want to explain what these are, and then we're going to look at a, at a fairly short uh, piece of Scripture, and then we're going to break it down to see if it's not a little bit deeper than what it, maybe it appears just on the surface. So as we sit down to study God's Word, and we open up the Bible and we start to read, the first principle that we need to address is observation which means the question is, what, what does it say? What is it saying? You know, in this step, you're going to just look at the Bible verse or the story that you uh, happen to be reading and just write down what you're observing. You're not really trying to completely interpret it at this point. You're just writing down the gist of what you're reading. And if you'll remember, we talked about this, I think, in week two of this service uh, series, the main difference between simply reading the Bible and studying the Bible is usually a pencil and paper. That's usually the difference. If you're not taking any notes, you're really, you're just reading, not necessarily studying the Bible. And, and don't get me wrong, reading is good. A lot of times we just sit down to read. I'm just saying there is a difference. So you read it once or twice, you, you write down what you think it's saying. That's step one. That's observation. And that leads us then into step two, which is interpretation. Interpretation answers the question, what does it mean? You know, you started with what does it say, 
and now you're asking, what does it mean? And you need to do that because oftentimes those are two different things. You with me? It's very important to know what something literally means because oftentimes what something says and what it actually means are two different things. Have you figured that part out? In Matt, I'll give, here's a good example. In Matthew 5, Jesus mentions the old law about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Here's, here's what that, you, you remember that portion of scripture from the old time? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? So here's what that literally said. It says, if someone belts you in the mouth, and I mean knocks some teeth out, you have every biblical right to pick up a brick and just smash them in the mouth and knock their teeth out. That's what it said, literally, correct? Or if they poked you in the eyes, you have the right to poke them in the eyes. This would have been a great era for the three stooges to live in. There's a lot of poking and things going on. But let's say they came up to you and they cut your arm off, according to what this literally says. Well, you can't cut their arm off. Or they cut your tongue out. You can't cut their tongue out because it only mentions eyes and teeth. You with me? But then Jesus, he goes on to say something that really kind of blows our mind. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, would you say that that verse right there literally means what it says? Or does it require some interpretation? I would say, because if it literally means what it says, then if someone does something mean to us, man, we don't have to take it. We can retaliate unless, of course, they slap, slap our face. Then not only do we have to take it, then we have to go ahead and tell, we have to turn the cheek and say, hey man, give me one right here. Put a little stank on it this time, you know. Is that what it's really saying? So the point we're trying to establish here is that you can take a single particular scripture out of its proper context and you can turn it into, uh, into something that is saying absolutely what it does not mean. And that's why we have hundreds and hundreds of weird cults today. I mean, ever since man learned how to write his thoughts down on paper, we have all used metaphors and uh, analogies, and we, we use these phrases to convey a thought that is not literally what our words are saying. Here's, a, here's an example. Let's say if I were to write a letter to you and somewhere in the body of this letter, I say something like, hey, I just want you to know I've, I've just been pulling your leg. As a matter of fact, I've been pulling your leg for years, but now I feel it's time to come clean. Now, that takes a little interpretation, right? I mean, let's say you take that letter, you put it in a time capsule, you bury it, and hundreds of years later, someone that's in a completely different culture, they dig this thing up and, and they begin to tell someone else, that, man, you're not going to believe this weird letter I found. It was about this guy who for some you know, unknown reason had been pulling on some other man's leg for years. And apparently after years of pulling, he abruptly stopped pulling because he felt like he needed to go and, and bathe himself and clean up. Probably he was all sweaty from all those years of pulling. 
So the point is, the best way to tell what a Bible uh, scripture or portion means is to look closely at the context around it as well. Now here's why you have to do that. Because words mean different, have different meanings at different times, right? You need to know what's going on in the context that it's spoken. Take the word, for example, pin, P-I-N. If I say the word pin to you right now, I have no idea what's coming into your head. If you were a bowler, you may have that coming into your head. Or a banker, you might have a pin may mean something totally different to you. If you are a wrestler, pin means something different to you. If you are a seamstress, pin means something different to you. The truth is there's more than 30 different meanings for the word pin alone. Can you believe that? So you can rarely look at just one or even a few words and definitively say, oh, here's exactly what this means. Because it may not mean that in the context of which it's speaking. It means what it means within whatever that context is. But that's why you always have to look at the scriptures around it and what you're reading and not just one sole scripture and determine this is exactly what that means. So you ask, what does it say? And then secondly, you ask, what does it mean? And that leads you to step three, correlation. And the question is, what other verses explain this? Finding out if there's anything else in the Bible will, uh, about that particular topic really helps your understanding of what you're presently reading, and that is called correlation. You compare and you correlate. I've got several pretty good commentary, big old thick heavy Bible commentary books, my favorite being Strong's Concordance. Anybody have one of those? If you ever buy a concordance, save your money on all the others. In my opinion, get the Strong's. It's the best one. But a lot of good commentaries. I have to say, though, in reality, the most reliable and authoritative commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. But commentaries come in handy. So if you have a portion of Scripture that's unclear to you, in a lot of cases, you can find verses that are clear that help you understand the verse that is not so clear. That's called correlation. And that leads us to the last step of this process, which is application. And that question is, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do with this that I've just read and that I'm studying? I mean, you've asked the question, what does it say? You've asked the question, what does it mean? You've asked what other verses help explain this. And now, what am I going to do about it? There's these four types of questions that we need to ask ourselves when we're studying God's Word. So what we're going to do the rest of the morning here is I'm going to take this portion of Scripture, I'm going to read it to you, and then on the surface we're going to, we're going to see how deep and relevant we think that is, but then we're going, to, we're going to ask these four questions and we're going to start to dig into it a little bit more. And this portion of Scripture is Philippians 2, 19 through 30. But let me give you a little bit of background of what's going on before we start to read it. Paul is sitting in a very nasty Roman prison cell. And he is uh, soon to appear before Caesar. And he's hoping that he's going to be released because he wants to go and visit the churches that he helped to begin. But right now, all he can do is write letters and just hope and pray that they even get there. 
So he's writing this letter to the church that he helped start in Philippi, is a city in Greece. He's in Rome right now, sitting in this Roman prison. But he's writing to the people in Greece, and because uh, they are specifically in the city of Philippi, the book is called, or the letter is called, Philippians. If he had been writing a letter to us specifically, that letter would have been entitled, San Antonians. Literally, and like the book of Galatians written to the people in Galatia. So it sounds a little remedial, but there's a lot of people that don't make that connection, what's going on there. So the people in Philippi had taken up this offering, a love offering for Paul, but they they didn't have mail. They just can't stick this in the mail. They've got to get somebody that will take it there. And they send this guy, his name is Epaphroditus. I think I'm saying that right. Say it with me, Epaphroditus. Aren't you glad you're not up here having to say that name? Epaphroditus, I think that's it. And so he, he's making this trip from Greece to Rome. This is no easy trip. It's 800 miles. And the people in Philippi, they, they had taken up this offering for Paul, and so they send Epaphroditus to take it there. Paul is basically writing a thank you letter to this church in Philippi. The book of Philippians is, is, is like one big thank you note to the people at the church in Philippi. So let me read it to you, this thank you note, and then we'll start to break it down a little bit. This is out of the NIV. Paul wrote, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with a father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Now, be honest, as you read through and kind of gloss over that, you might probably think this. You might think, well, you know, that's a, that's a nice little thank you note there. You may think, I don't exactly know why God put it in there. Maybe he felt he needed a little filler, you know. There's certainly, uh, you might think, well, I don't see any deep theological truth here. So I'm just going to kind of gloss over that part. I'll bet I get to something good here in a minute. Something that I can really apply to my life. How many of you have ever read the Bible and that's kind of what you thought when you got in? Well, I'm going to read a little more and I'm bound to get to something that really speaks to, to me. Happens all the time. So on the surface, the, your opinion might be that, well, it had nothing all that deep to say. But I would say, no, I would say you're wrong. 
I think that when you really break these verses down, you're, you find some very deep spiritual truths in just these few verses, even though you may not see it on the surface. What we have to do is some observation and interpretation, principles of observation. So remember those verses that we talked about uh, earlier in the series, 2 Timothy 3.16, it said, all scripture is God-breathed. Remember that? It said, how much scripture? All, not part of, you know, not just little bits and pieces, all of it. Even stuff that just sounds like a thank you note is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So let's start with, print, with the first step of, of these principles of observation. And it is the question is, what exactly did it say? Now, what you would do here, you'd read through this thing a couple times and then maybe just jot down what you think it said. Nothing fancy, just what you see on the surface. And here's some things that we see on the surface. One, we see that Paul wants to send two men back to Philippi. Who are they? Timothy and who else? And the other guy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Timothy and the other guy. I like that. Yeah, there's nothing mysterious about that. It said so right at the beginning of the letter, right? Paul mentions he'd like to send Timothy and Epaphroditus back to them. The second thing that we kind of see on the surface is that Paul views both of these men, he views them as role models. In fact, he says they are role models that deserve to be honored. Paul said of Timothy, he said, I have nobody else like him. Wow, wouldn't that be something incredible to have spoken of, of you? Especially coming from one of the greatest uh, Christians, uh, pioneers of the, of the church, like Paul, to, to say that Paul is saying, Timothy is the best guy I've got. If Paul had said something about, like that about you or me, boy, we'd feel pretty good about ourselves, wouldn't we? And then Paul says, I'm so thankful for you guys. I wish I could send this. Uh, it would be like him saying this. I'm so thankful. I wish I could send this letter back to you with this guy named Doug Roberts. That's what it's like you know, if you put yourself... And he'd say, but unfortunately, he won't be around for another 1,896 years. But that would be quite the ringing endorsement, wouldn't it? That's what he says of Timothy. Then of Epaphroditus, he says, welcome him and honor men like him. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but concerning both of these guys, Paul uses the phrase, like him. Speaking of Timothy, like him. I have nobody like him. And then speaking of Epaphroditus, welcome and honor men like him. So anytime you see a phrase that is, is repeated in what you're reading, it's always a good idea to kind of pay special attention and try to get to the, uh, the bottom of what that is actually saying. And here it's saying that we as Christian men and women, this is speaking, uh, uses the word men, but it certainly applies to all of us, and it's telling us that we need to emulate men like these guys. And that should bring us to the next question. Well, who exactly are these guys? What are, what are these guys doing that is so special and, and worthy of, of all of this honor? Well, if you just glossed over these verses, you probably didn't see that Paul actually says five things 
about these two men that make them very special in his eyes and in the eyes of the Lord. In verse 20, he says of Timothy, he takes a genuine interest in you. Verse 22, he says, he has proved himself. Verse 25 of Epaphroditus, he said, he's my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. In verse 26, he says, he longs for all of you and he is distressed. And then in between verse 27 and 30, he says, he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. Those are the five observations that we make about these, these two guys. So let's begin a little interpretation here. What does it mean? The passage is really an extremely powerful passage that contains these five characteristics of a godly man or a godly person. If you want to be the kind of person that God blesses and can use in a very mighty way, then you need to be like these men. That's what it's saying. And in verse 21, we find that first characteristic. Paul says he has nobody else like Timothy. Why is there nobody else like Timothy? Apparently, he says, because Timothy had this genuine interest in their welfare. He actually really cared what happened to these people. Most people only care about themselves. And one good tool in interpreting the Bible is to look at different translations. There's a bunch of English translations, and that's good because no single word fully explains another word. When it's in another language and you're trying to interpret a single word from a different language, it, it almost always takes a phrase to explain that one word. For instance, uh, in English... English is actually a fairly lazy language, even though, you know, there seems like there's a lot of rules involved. Not near as many rules as in a lot of other languages. In English, we have one word for the word love. Anybody know what that is? Oh, you guys are good. See, that was a trick question. Just seeing if you're paying attention. We have one word for the word love, and that word is love. And that can be a real problem for us a lot of times. Because it speaks nothing of the intensity. You know, here are two sentences that I have literally come out of my mouth several times in my lifetime. The first sentence is this, I love Jesus. It's good, right? Here's another sentence that's come out of my mouth. I love ice cream. You know, we're put, by putting ice cream on the same level as Jesus. No, I don't. I love Jesus more. I can tell what some of you are thinking. You're so mean. You're looking at me thinking, I don't know, Pastor Doug. Looks like maybe ice cream is a couple notches ahead of Jesus. No, it's not. Man. But the point is this. Greek, Greek is a much more technical language than English, much more precise language. For instance, in Greek, they've got four words for the word love, depending on the intensity and, and what it's speaking of. They have the word eros, which is a, a passionate love like you would have for your spouse. They have the word storge, 
which is a deep love like you'd have for your children or close family. They have the word phileo, which is more of a brotherly type of love for our friends. We love our friends. And then they have agape, which means an unconditional type of love like God has for us and that we are supposed to have for Him. Amen? So back to my point, you look at different translations to get a bigger picture and interpretation without you know, having to learn Greek or Hebrew. It helps. So here we have this first characteristic of a godly man. And that is a godly man is a caring man. A godly man is compassionate. He's caring. He's unselfish. He thinks about others above himself. And God is telling us that this type of nature is worthy of honor. If we'll be that way. You know, I tell you, if there was ever a message for today, I, it's found right here in these verses of Philippians 2. Because everything in our culture basically teaches us to be self-centered and selfish. I mean, to care about ourselves over everything else. And if you'll stop and think about it, almost every TV commercial you see supports that nature. Everything is about you. I mean... We do it all for you. We, we do it your way. Have it your way. You deserve, you deserve a break today. You know, all of these famous advertising slogans, and they're all instilling in us, hey, you know what? I am pretty important, aren't I? As a matter of fact, I'm the most important person I know. That's what it's trying to instill in us. Uh, it, it's very rare. I can't think of one commercial or advertising slogan that teaches us to put others ahead of ourselves. So, it's a very rare thing today to find a completely unselfish man. And when you find one, it says they're worthy to be honored. So, Here's the second thing that we learn about Timothy. It says that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. If you study that word proven there, you find that it means, it means tried and tested, verified, reliable. It means dependable, faithful. I mean, he, he was ram tough. That's gospel according to Dodge right there. That's how we won our trucks, right? Ram tough. How do we know that? TV tells us that. Somebody, this is a great quote. Somebody said that the greatest ability in life is dependability. Think about it. We desperately need men who are consistent in their walk with God today and they're dependable. And it takes us right into the second characteristic of a godly man. Godly men are consistent men. And as I said, this applies to women as well. Godly men are not all wishy-washy. They're dependable. They're men of conviction and character, and they keep their word. They don't just have strong opinions. They have strong convictions. And how many of you know there's a huge difference between an, op between an opinion and a conviction? I hope you know that. Big difference. You know, an opinion is something that you'll argue about. You ever argued about your opinion with somebody else? A conviction is something that you're willing to die for. It's much stronger than an opinion, isn't it? Do you have convictions in your life? Here's another quote someone said. They said, you're not, 
really ready to live until you know what you're willing to die for. Well, that's something to ponder too. Until you know what you're willing to die for, you're not really living, you're just kind of existing. Because you don't know where you're headed in life. Godly men are reliable, loving, they're consistent, they don't act one way with one group of people and another way with a different group of people. They're consistent in their walk. So getting back to the text in the next verse, Paul says, I send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. He uses those three kind of relational metaphors there. Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. And each of those uh, have a common trait between them, and the trait is cooperation. And that is characteristic three of a godly person. A godly man is cooperative. Why do you think he used those three metaphors, brother, worker, soldier? I think he might have used uh, these because the Christian life, we are a family. Amen? And, and this is a fellowship of family. And sometimes, boy, it's a real struggle. It's a fight together. As Christians, we are all family, which is why for generations you've heard people in the church refer to others as like, you know, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. Uh, the bottom line is the church should be a family, not just an institution. Do you agree with that? It's not to say we don't sometimes have a few family members that could be institutionalized. <laughs> not in this church, but I, you know, I've seen some other places. As Christians, we're all children in God's family, Right? We all share in this great commission of the church. We all have work that we need to do together to ever fulfill his commission to us. We're fellow soldiers because we fight the same battles. We all have the same enemy, Satan. And we need to support each other and sometimes we go to battle for each other. Godly people are cooperative people. They're not lone rangers. They get along with other people. They're team players. They don't have attitudes that say, look, I don't need anybody else. I, I, you know, I don't need you. I don't need you. I don't need a small group. I've got everything under control. I can do it all myself. That's not a team player. That's not a person who is cooperative. Godly men know how to give and take. They know how to work with others. And I'll tell you, in the corporate world, Companies are willing to pay big dollars for people who have good relational skills and have that team member kind of mentality. You're aware of that, right? I tell you this, if you, if you think to yourself sometimes, you know what, I am not getting paid what I'm worth. Then, you know, my first suggestion would be check your relational skills. How you get along, how you work with people. See, one time I went in for a job interview. The guy starts talking to me. He says, wait, wait, wait just a minute. I said, first of all, I'd like to know how much this job pays. He said, well, how, how much are you worth? And I said, well, I don't work for anybody that cheap. You know, nobody paid to get in here today, okay? <laughs> so I can't afford my own writers. I come up with this stuff myself. So. <laughs> A godly man, the fourth characteristic, a godly man is considerate. 
Considerate means that you care about the feelings of others, not just yourself. Epaphrodite, he was distressed because these other people were distressed. So can you relate to that? I mean, distress, you've, have you ever known someone that you're close enough to that, man, they, you know they're in a bad situation in life, and because of that, well, you feel distressed right along with them. That's a godly characteristic. A, God, a godly man is considerate. He cares about how others feel. And sometimes people don't care what they say. You know, I've heard people say, well, let me tell you something about me. I just, tell, I just tell it like it is. I just say what I think. And they say it in a very prideful way, like they think that's a, that's a great thing. They have no filter between what their brain thinks and what their mouth says. And oftentimes, there's a word that describes that perfectly. That word is rude. We've all probably been guilty of being rude before, Right? But you know, I just love it. They'll, they'll act like they're bragging. Say, I just, I just mean what I, I just, I just say what I think. When here is something important to know. Listen to this: an idiot will usually say exactly what he thinks, but it doesn't mean it's worth listening to. We need to remember that quote because uh, it applies to all of us once in a while. A godly man is considerate. Of others. So we recap. A godly man is caring, consistent, cooperative. He's considerate. And finally, the fifth characteristic is a godly man is courageous. Verse 27, speaking again of Epaphroditus, Paul said, Indeed, he was ill and he almost died. He almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life for the help that you couldn't give me. Now, did you notice what he was courageous about there? He was courageous not for his own benefit. He was courageous for the sake of others in the kingdom of God. He agreed to make this journey, to bring this letter and this offering to Paul. This was a huge, huge deal. You know, there's all kinds of people today who are willing to take risks for themselves. You watch some of these extreme sports things on TV, and I just shake my head, and I, and I think, how stupid do you have to be to do some of these things? You ever watch these extreme skiers where they just come down this cliff of snow, basically, and they're trying to dodge these big boulders, and sometimes they make it to the bottom, and sometimes they don't. But they risk it because if they are successful, it's going to be in, bring incredible glory to them. They're willing to risk it for the glory it might bring them. The same is true even in the business world. People will make business deals. Man, they will bet the farm on almost anything if they stand to make a great benefit from it themselves. But how often are we willing to risk for the benefit of others? The church in Philippi, they take up this offering for Paul who is in Rome 800 miles away, and then they need someone who's willing to take it to him. That would just simply send somebody to take it. No, there's no simply about it. You know, there are, there are no planes, trains, or automobiles. What there will be along the way is a lot of thieves and murderers. That's what he's risking. So, you know, it'd be like, if, I, if your pastor, me, if I were to ask you 
to, let's say we received a big offering for Jane Christensen, who was with God for Girls down there in Juarez, Mexico. That's not as far as it is from Greece to Rome, by the way. And we took this big offering, and I said, hey, would you, would you take this offering over to Jane Christensen in, in Juarez, Mexico? The only thing is, I need you to walk. I don't think there'd be many people willing to do that, right? Not in this day and age. I mean, if you're willing to do that, if I said, would you take that and just walk it over there, and you said, yes, pastor, I'll do that. My next sentence would be, man, I got to get you on my board of deacons. If you're willing to do that. This was an 800-mile trek to deliver this offering to Paul. And it's, you know, this is more, it goes beyond, oh, well, this is kind of a hassle. This is a life-endangering trip. It took some real courage. There's a, not a lot of people around like that today. The majority of people today, especially in the church culture, that a lot of times the attitude, well, I'm, I'll live for Christ as long as it kind of conveniently fits into my life. But don't ask me to do too much. You start asking me to do too much, and I'll just go find a church where they don't expect really much of anything out of me. And that is a huge mentality in the American church today. People church hopping all over the place because the church they were in started to expect to put others ahead of themselves. Christianity in the church has weakened a lot over the centuries. There's a lot more limits on the level of commitment and sacrifice than just even a few decades ago. Christianity, you know, has to fit into people's schedules so often. I thank God for pastoring a church like CT Church. I mean, we've got a ton of great people in this church. It's made up of wonderful people who care, who are consistent, who are cooperative, that's huge. And I, and I appreciate it so much. I mean, we could never accomplish the things in the kingdom without everyone working in cooperation, right? But I tell you, there's always room to improve. Amen? We can always strive to even improve. The more people we have on board, the more God uses us, and the more our lives are blessed in return. Pastor Todd can tell you all about getting blessed in return this week. What a great story, huh? But thank God for people who are caring, consistent, cooperative, considerate, and courageous. So we've talked about observation and interpretation. Just briefly, I want to touch on correlation and application. I'll be done hanging in just a few minutes. Correlation in our Bible study is where we ask that question. Is there anything else in the Bible that relates to this passage? And their answer is there almost always is. In this case, you want to find more information on Timothy? Oh, there's two more whole books about him. First and second Timothy. Even uh, Epaphroditus is mentioned in a couple other places in the Bible than just this story. And how many of you this morning, you'd raise your hand and said, that's the first time I've ever heard that name, name mentioned in my life. Epaphroditus. It's in there several times. So suffice it to say, correlation gives you a much broader sense and understanding of the, the scriptures that you're focusing on. And finally, we come to the step in the Bible study that really this step is what separates the men from the boys. And that is application. 
I mean, we can know the Bible upside and down. It all, the most important step of all is application, right? You might know the Bible inside out, upside down, but if you don't apply it to your life, you're no better than Satan. That was a pretty bold statement, right? Because the truth is that unless you have really studied the Bible, you may not even know as much about it as he does. Because I'm just telling you, he knows the Bible. Here's a, here, here's a great, great quote. Anytime your enemy is more well-informed than you, it will be a tough battle to win. I'm going to read it again. Anytime your enemy is more well-informed than you, it will be a tough battle to win. Does anybody have any idea who said that? I did. Every once in a while, I kind of come up with a good one. So write that down and, and, and put that in your notes. James 1.22 said, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So, using this portion of Scripture that we've read today, how would we apply these Scriptures to our life? How do we, how do we break this down, this application process? Well, first, it said, honor those like this. The question you might want to ask yourself today is, do I know somebody, do I have someone like this in my life who has been... Uh, Caring and consistent and cooperative made a real impact in my life. If I know someone like that, I should honor them. I mean, maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's a friend or a relative that made a real positive impact in your life. Think of a way to honor them. It doesn't have to be something elaborate. I mean, a lot of times it might be as simple as just writing them a note to thank them. You can send a text. You don't even have to actually write it out. You can message them on Facebook. Or if you want everybody to know how thankful you are, you just you know, post it right there on the wall. And then all your other friends will be hacked off. Oh, he thinks that way about this guy. He didn't say anything nice about me. And then it starts this whole big deal. It's one of the glories of Facebook. So, let them know how they've been a blessing to you. The second application would be sit down and think about which of these areas that were demonstrated by Timothy and Epaphroditus and say to yourself, which of these areas am I the most weak in? Which am I weakest in? Could I, use, could I, could I stand to be more considerate, more caring, more courageous, more cooperative? And analyze yourself. Grade yourself. Do I need to be more committed, more cooperative in the kingdom of God, a team player? This whole message today is a message that this world is desperate for. We need a lot more people today. We need men and women to step up as leaders. Men, we need to be step up as leaders in our home. Why? It's scriptural. To be more caring, to be more committed, more considerate, more cooperative, and more courageous. Because our world is desperate for people like that. And we live in a culture today that just idolizes celebrities and sports figures. We put them up on these pedestals when actually, in many cases, they are shallow people doing shallow things that don't amount to anything. But boy, we put them on the covers of magazines and we, boy, would they, they get paid millions of dollars to do all of these insignificant things in the overall scope of life. There's a, another famous quote by a guy named Lin Yutang. Anyone ever heard of Lin Yutang? Well, aren't you glad you came to church today? 
Here's what he said. This is, man, this is a deep, deep thought. And he said, when small men cast long shadows, you know the sun is setting on a culture. Think about it and let it sink in. I mean, we live in a culture where, you know, relatively small men are doing unimportant things in the scope of life that cast these long shadows. People think it's such a big deal. Boy, this guy, if what he's saying is true, we are on the precipice of this culture coming to an end. And how many of you believe that anyway? When small men cast long shadows, you know the sun is setting on a culture. See, what we need today are men and women of God. Men like Timothy and Epaphroditus. People who are caring, consistent, cooperative, considerate, and courageous. That's what we need. You have been listening to CT Church in San Antonio, Texas. This recording was presented in the context of our Sunday service. For more information, please visit us at ctagsa.com, connect with us on Facebook, or call us at 210-657-3578.